Now, what would be the odds that that was happening again, that that wasn't a new report? Was that a new report or an old report? That's what I'm asking. Is it a new report or an old report? Is that a new report? Well, we don't know. When a seasoned sports fan teams up with a millennial, opinions may vary, but the debates assuredly won't disappoint. Check your sources. It's New Report, Old Report. Here's your hosts, John Lund and Al Renato. Well, Al, another exciting week in athletics. MLB's trade deadline is over and ruffled some feathers across the league. And of course, nothing circles the wagons quite like the National Football League and fans across this great country getting excited to watch professional athletes practice and then analyzing said practice and then making decisions on how the season will go based on said practices. Wash, rinse, and repeat for football. It's good to be back after our little hiatus. And unfortunately, we come back on the hands of a couple of deaths across professional sports, one in the National Basketball Association, one in Major League Baseball. We can start in the NBA and the impact of one Bill Russell on the sport itself, the impact that he had around the world itself, what he had to deal with as a black athlete, as a black man, how he was able to manage that both professionally and on a level with his family. He passed away at the age of 88 with one of the best lives well lived, both from what he was able to do as a player, but as we mentioned, just as an activist, as somebody that spoke out about so much of the stupid that happened across the country while he was alive to unfortunately see it. Hopefully we'll be told his stories long after he's now gone as himself on the court and then what he was able to do off it because there's countless and boundless stories and great ones at that from the great Bill Russell. Well, first of all, it's great to be back with you and our fans. Uh, and what's been a hot summer so far, active summer, uh, eventful summer. Unfortunately, the two living legends we're going to discuss left us in the last few days. But these are lives to be celebrated. Uh, Yes, we're incredibly sorry and remorseful that they're gone. But these are two fabulous lives. We'll get to the great Vince Scully in a few minutes. Uh, But Bill Russell is the yardstick of winning athleticism. Bill Bill Russell is, is the greatest winning athlete in American sports team history. And it's not close. Consecutive national titles with the San Francisco Dons in college and a 55-game winning streak and 11 NBA championships, including eight in a row, unheard of, in 13 years with the Boston Celtics, the last two as coach. An all-time great player, uh, arguably the greatest defensive center of all time, for a long time, considered by many the best center of all time. I would argue against that instantly with Will Chamberlain, but but clearly the winningest player of all time. Those great Celtics teams all said, all great players, that he was the difference. They didn't start winning championships until Red Auerbach made the trade to bring him to Boston and have him be the centerpiece of the legendary Celtic fast break, Uh, a rebounding and defensive machine a shot-blocking machine, and the guy that was the focal point in 
what became for a very long time the greatest dynasty in terms of the time frame. 11 championships in 13 years is still the greatest dynasty in American sports. Greater than anything the Yankees ever did. They didn't do 11 and 13 and eight in a row. And Russell was the focal point. He was the centerpiece. He was what made the fast break go. He's the one who anchored the defense. He's the one who triggered the break. He's the one who blocked the shots in the artful way that kept them in play. He scored when necessary. He scored off the break. He scored off the offensive rebounding. He was an incredible defensive rebounder, and he defended Will Chamberlain. He didn't stop Will Chamberlain, which nobody did, but he was able to, to some degree, control Will Chamberlain. And all the years that they played against each other, Wilt's teams beat him once in the postseason. That was a 76er. When Wilt got traded from the Warriors to the 76ers, lost him in the finals when he was with the San Francisco Warriors, and then got traded to Philadelphia. So they were in the same division, excuse me, same conference. Wilt beat him once, 66 67 to break the string of championships. And you know they then they won it against the San Francisco uh, Warriors, who he had been traded from, beat Rick Barry and Nate Thurman. And then the following year, in 67-68, uh, the Sixers had a 3-1 lead, about to dispose of the Celtics again. And then the Celtics came back and won three straight with Russell as coach. And then they knocked off the Lakers in seven. And then the next year, they knocked off the Lakers again, this time with Wilt. So... Uh, you know, he, built, he, he beat Wilt in all series except one. He wasn't a better player. He was a more successful team player. He was a more successful championship player. Uh, 11 championships is unheard of. It is the gold standard of team sports. You know, I've referred to Tom Brady as the Bill Russell of the NFL. Not the most talented quarterback of all time, but now holding most of the records because of longevity. Clearly talented, but not the most talented thrower or most beautiful in terms of the art of throwing the football or the most athletic, but the most successful. Seven championships, seven Super Bowls. Well, Russell was that way. He wasn't the prettiest player in terms of offensive skills. He was left-handed, had some baby hooks, wasn't a great shooter, wasn't a great free-throw shooter, wasn't a dominant offensive player, but he was a dominant player. He was a winning player. He did all those little things that helped you win. I got to see him play and, you know, as a young kid and appreciated, even though I despise the Celtics to this day, but I appreciated how he played and what he did to aid in winning, whether it was you know, getting defensive rebounds and starting the fast break, fill, you know, at times making the proper pass in the half-court offense, finishing with an offensive rebound at the end of the fast break, always getting up and down the court with his incredible athleticism. He was a high jumper, so he's incredibly athletic. And the ability to defend uh, Wilt, who was bigger than him, and obviously other centers, but Wilt being the most difficult guy to defend. Great rebounder at both ends of the court. And a, a total awareness on the court of what was necessary to succeed. You know, winning plays blocking shots and keeping them in play, starting fast breaks, outlet passes, running the court, energetic, and a great leader, and a guy who drove his teammates to greatness. And if you listen to every one of them, they swear by the fact that he was really the guy that was the missing piece, and they took off when he got there, 
and everybody raved about him as a player, as a leader on the court, off the court. And Jerry West said, if the logo, if I could ever have one player to play with, which he never did, it would be Bill Russell. That's how high he lost to him six times. So that's how highly he thought, I think it was six. That's how highly he thought of Bill Russell as a player. And many called him the greatest player of all time. Not me. Um, you know, I still have him as, as a top 10 player because of the championships and because of his greatness. But he did not have a great offensive skill set. It wasn't hideous. It wasn't Ben Wallace. All right? you know, it wasn't Dennis Rodman. But it wasn't to the level of, you know, the elite players that we see now and even then in terms of his offensive skills. And you know, off the court, in terms of civil rights, he was at the forefront. He was, you know, leading the marches. He was leading by example. He was standing up for equal rights with Muhammad Ali and a young Luel Cinder and Jim Brown and Rayford Johnson. And you know, those athletes who saw what was going on in the everyday world and realized they had to stand up because they were giants not just in the community, but even you know, on a national stage, because these were some of the best athletes and success, most successful athletes of their time. You know, we're talking about the the greatest boxer in the world, the world champion Muhammad Ali. We're talking about the most successful basketball player, Bill Russell. We're talking about the greatest football player of all time, and Jimmy Brown. We're talking about you know college national champion and young NBA star Lou Alcindor. I mean, just listen to the list. These these are the people who helped, I don't want to say stomp out because it hasn't been stomped out, but who helped fight racism and worked for black and equal rights you know, of minorities in this country and played a huge role in accomplishing voting rights, civil rights, and equal rights for minorities. And, and they used their positions. You know, people talk about it now, you know, athletes standing up. This is not something new. The difference is it's on Twitter, it's on social media. These guys were in center stage. They were at press conferences. They were you know, in marches. They were leading the community, and they did it by example. And they fought hard, and they refused to stand down. So they accomplished as much off the field and used their positions of popularity and notoriety that they had gained on the field and on the court for the greater good of people who were suffering. And they were incredible. What they had to put up with, what Bill Russell had to put up with in Boston, notoriously, uh, for lack of a better term, bigoted town, and the things that he had to go through in his own home. You've read the stories, you've heard the stories. It's hideous. But this was a man who was as successful off the court in terms of what he accomplished as he was on the court. And after he retired, he continued to do it for another half century. Yeah, and you mentioned social media, and I think that was an important aspect for Bill Russell and that my generation, even generation younger than mine, got a chance to see him out and about. We see him at the award shows, standing up on stage with the other great centers and power forwards at the time and telling them that he'd kick their ass, <laughs> flipping off Charles Barkley, like doing funny stuff like that to where a wonderful sense of humor. Absolutely. And, and people hopefully looked into more of who is this guy, this Bill Russell, and then found out about everything that he was able to accomplish 
based on what's been written about him and said about him. And it's one of the things we talked about on this show previously was he benefited from just living longer, whereas Wilt Chamberlain died 22 years ago and isn't necessarily in the forefront of people's minds when we're having these greatest of all time discussions and where Wilt ranks in all of that because he wasn't in the public eye for my generation and below it. It's unfortunate they, that he passed also, away for it. They also helped build the NBA with that rivalry, which was the greatest one-on-one rivalry in the history of the sport, Wilt against Russell. And what they basically kept from a good chunk of the media and the public is that they were great friends. And because they were so ingenious, they didn't let on and let it get out to the general public that they were great friends. Because had they done that, I think it would have really lessened their rivalry. But you know, they talked about, you know, they, they would, those are back in the days of you know train taking trains. You know, Wilt lived in New York, took the train to Philly, and then talked about you know he Russell would have him over to his house for Thanksgiving dinner. You know, imagine if people knew about that. I mean, think about it now. If even today, with the way things have changed, if the greatest rivals in a sport were, were having Thanksgiving dinner together in the heat of battle, you know, while they're battling during the regular season. Yeah. If Tom Brady and Peyton Manning had Thanksgiving, didn't you know they're playing golf together when the, when, when the season's over and when they're retired? But imagine them having Thanksgiving dinner together at midseason. Uh, you know, how would that fly? Well, they, here, here's Wilton Russell having Thanksgiving dinner together. But nobody knew about it then. You know, nobody knew what close friends they were then. We found out about it later on. And and Russell and Wilt, you know, Wilt, Wilt took on the role of, of the bad guy. Because he was Goliath. And Wilt said, you know, I, I was Goliath. Nobody roots for the bad guy. Nobody roots for Goliath. And that was okay. And, and Wilt was really the gentle giant. Russell played the meaner game of the two. Because Wilt said, they always said about Wilt, if, if, if he played as mean as Russell, he would have killed guys. He was that strong. He was that big. He was that talented. But the point is, they played on it. They, they let it go. They let it fly. They let it build. And it helped build the NBA. Their rivalry was really you know, the first great rivalry in the sport. It was an individual rivalry, unlike any other the sport had seen. And, you know, to some degree, you know, Magic and Bird was the next thing closest to it. But, you know, they didn't guard each other for the most part. They didn't play the same position. You know, here you had the greatest offensive force in the history of the game facing off against the greatest defensive center, arguably, certainly at the time and in the history of the game. And they played against each other constantly. It's funny when you hear about it, the friendships behind the rivalries. I remember when David Ortiz and A-Rod let it loose of how great their friendship was. And during the height of Yankees Red Sox, A-Rod's going over to David Ortiz's place after games, smoking cigars, drinking whiskey and reminiscing and talking baseball. And if people knew that at the time, they'd boo them out of the stadiums. The opposing we don't stadiums. Like it. We still you don't, can't we talk still to like each it. other. Get out we of there. Even hearing it now is like, yeah, I can't believe they were doing that. Fraternizing with the enemy, the nerve, having friendships outside of these games. And they both had great senses of humor. You know, Russell was hysterical. You know, a- after he left the game and, and coaching, he went right into the booth at ABC when I was a kid. And he became the lead analyst on the game of the week with Krushenko. And he, he really provided incredible insights, you know, the likes of which you hadn't heard before. He was really the first guy, and people talk about all the time now, 
especially in basketball, because you know, you're out there the entire time and you're spend, expending so much energy. Football, you get to rest. There's two sides to the ball. Baseball, you go back in the dugout. But Russell all, always talked and harped on when a team would make a comeback. He was the first one I ever heard say, talk about now is the hard part because you've expended so much energy to make the comeback. What have you got left to draw on? What have you got left in the tank to finish? Because you, you've worked so hard to get back in the game. You know, and remember, these are the days when a 20-point deficit required you to make it up from the foul line and two-pointers. There was no three-point shot. So coming back from a large deficit was much harder. You had to get a lot more stops. You didn't score in bundles. Even if you went on a run, there were two-pointers. There were layups. There were 28-foot jump shots. There were still twos. So you couldn't come back as quickly. You had to expend more energy. We always talked about what does the team have left after this comeback because it takes so much out of you. It saps your energy to play defense that long, that hard, get stopped, score, and can you finish? He's really the first guy I ever heard talk about that. They obviously named the trophy for him now, the NBA Finals Most Valuable Player Award. So thankfully, generations after this will at least be able to see that name and maybe inquire about what he was about. But it was a big loss for the basketball community because it was a guy that kept up with it all. He could talk to anybody currently playing about how their game was or what he's seen. And he was somebody that always had interest in the sport, not necessarily always at the forefront of it and having to talk on TV about it or on radio about it. But he was at games, award shows until until he couldn't go anymore. So it was great getting to see him out and about and representing the sport for as many years as he did, because it extended along uh, several generations of fans of the sport. His name will be remembered uh, for, for a very long time to come. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. He's Al Renato. I'm John Lund. We'll be right back with the new report, old report here on Sports Radio America. We welcome you back. I'm John Lund. He's Al Renato, and this is the new report, old report. Then on Tuesday, a loss in Major League Baseball, as Vin Scully, the longtime broadcaster for the Los Angeles Dodgers, passed away at the age of 93. 94. I'm not getting any of this math right today. The age of 94. It was a devastating news to hear for any baseball fan because any baseball fan, regardless of whom you root for or how you take in the games, knows who Vin Scully is, and that's even with his last game being back in 2016. Not only was he part of legendary Dodgers games, he was a part of legendary moments throughout baseball on national stages. He was a part of legendary moments throughout sports on national stages. Football, golf, anything you can imagine. He's probably called it at some point, and it just so happens that miraculous things would happen when Vince Scully was on the call. It was almost like, at least for baseball, that the game was played around him and his stories. And there'd be one more foul tip or one more out ball outside just to make sure he could get in the end of whatever story he was telling about a player or a moment, etc. And he made the game something that you looked forward to to hear what he would say. And Dodgers fans would show up at the game with their radios to make sure they didn't miss anything. It was must-listen radio, regardless if you even like the Dodgers. And there's a lot thrown around in sports media and sports broadcasting and sports debate shows about the GOATs and who's the best at this and let's rank this list and that list. 
And I, I think it goes without saying this. These are one of the few times where everyone agrees Vin Scully is the greatest of all time at what he did. And he was around for a long time to be able to bless us with a lot of great stories, great moments. You could Google them and Twitter, go on Twitter to find them, etc. And you should if you haven't already, because you'll just get lost down a rabbit hole of just being able to hear his voice, his cadence, the way he went about storytelling. It was some of the best work that's ever been done for the sport. And he lived a great life after retirement, died as an old man. And we're thankful that we were able to have him, especially as baseball fans. It was truly remarkable considering the fact that he announced the Dodgers that long. And I mean, this is a guy who started in 1950, think about 57 years, 57 years from the Dodgers in Brooklyn to the Dodgers in Los Angeles, went to Fordham, played baseball at Fordham, played, played baseball against the first president Bush, who was at Yale at the time. And lived his dream, wanted to be a sports announcer from the time he was a little kid. Got a break uh, when Red Barber uh, took a liking to him and invited him to the booth to be the third man in the Dodger games. And then eventually, through contract issues, got the Dodger job, became the voice of the Dodgers, called the Brooklyn Dodgers, called their 55 championship moved to Los Angeles with the team, uh, made the trek out West and basically taught Los Angelinos baseball because, it, and the story goes that when the Dodgers first went to Los Angeles, they played Los Angeles Coliseum. The Dodger stadium is not built yet. So they're playing you know, in, in this cavernous football stadium that holds 105,000 people. And there were so many seats that were so far away. People literally could barely see the players. And Los Angeles was new to baseball. They didn't know the players on the team. A lot of the people didn't even know that much about baseball. And they took their transistor radios to the game to listen to Vince Scully tell them who was where, learn about the game, and it simply became vogue and habit and the normal course. They moved to a new ballpark in Chavez Ravine with great sight lines and easy to see, no issues, spotting players. But think about the fact that you are calling a baseball game and 55,000 people, a good chunk of them, are so enamored with listening to you that even though you're there watching, they have to have their transistor radios to their ear so they can listen to you describe what they're watching. That's how legendary he was. That's what a brilliant storyteller he was. He was Picasso at the mic. It's the simplest way I could put it. And if you, you have to listen to how he painted pictures. He built up a story. He built up a happening, whether it was Koufax's perfect game, whether it was Mookie Wilson's dribbler through Buckner's legs, whether it was Kirk Gibson's legendary home run, he brought you there in an incredible fashion. And then when the, the final event happened, he let you enjoy it without being a part of it. And then he would comment on it. He let it breathe, as our, as our, as our hero Chris Russo always says. But he, he let the event happen without overshadowing, 
never screaming, never hollering, never showing any kind of subjectivity, but doing what a professional does in an absolutely stunningly beautiful manner. That it was literally indescribable. He's calling Kofax's perfect game. 29,000 fans, a million butterflies. Who thinks of something like that? Who who plans to say something like that? Yeah, there's only there's 29,000 people in the building, but there's a million butterflies in their stomachs. Where, where does that come from? This is 1965, September 9th, calling the perfect game. I actually have a 45, which for you young folks is a record for you young folks. We used to play them instead of listening to music on our phones we had record players smaller than the normal record too mind you the normal record was what was a normal record that went on and played six or seven songs and a 45 was a little plate that had one song on each side and my uncle had moved to california long ago was a huge Dodger fan and when i was a little kid he sent me a 45 of the last inning of the perfect game from 1965. And believe it or not, I still have that 45. I have nothing to play it on, but I still have that 45 with the legendary, the, the line everybody remembers is the last two and two to Harvey Keene. But if you listen, you can listen to it on uh, YouTube. And I urge anyone and everyone to really want to appreciate Vince Scully, listen to the final entire inning, the top of the ninth of Sandy Koufax's perfect game. It is poetry behind the microphone. It's beautiful to listen to the phrases, the descriptions. It's so vivid. It's, it honors time. He, he, he lets you understand what's happening, when it's happening, how it's happening. He paints the picture. He gives you the setting and yet he still lets the event happening happen without overcoming it. That's what he did for Gibson's legendary home run when he brought Gibson out of the dugout and let us down that path and then he let it happen and he let it breathe and then he has, has the classic line you know that just you know the impossible has happened it, it, he is without a doubt the greatest baseball broadcaster of all time one of the great announcers of all time because you know he did golf he did the masters he was at the 18th hole he, he introduced us you know at the at the the opening on CBS, you know, we say the dogwood and the azalea are in bloom. Pull up a chair and join us. He called, you know, the catch in the corner of the end zone from Joe Montana to Dwight Clark in the NFC title game. He was a, he was a brilliant sports announcer, but he was unequaled when it came to calling play-by-play uh, for a baseball game. There will never be another like him, and uh, it was – Incredible to listen to him throughout my lifetime. He gave me memories of a lifetime that will stay with me forever. All while doing it alone for the most part. No partner, just him in a booth, his stats. I don't know how he acquired some of the stories that he got. I don't know if it was a research team. I don't know if it was so much as athletes just probably before or after games love sitting down with him to chat about life. And ended up just telling these things off the cuff. And a couple weeks later, or months later, or years later, might get on the radio. Fun anecdote from a conversation that he had with those athletes. Just transcendent as a broadcaster, especially once the age of the internet comes around, social media comes around, satellite radio comes around. And people he followed might think, people on Twitter. 
He followed people on Twitter yeah. in his 90s. He's on Cameo, he he, doing shout-outs. He, he didn't miss a beat. He was timeless. And I think that's one of the things that's so extraordinary. You know, somebody like me, who's an old fart, you know, who's not on Twitter and looks down on social media. And sometimes it should be looked down on. Sometimes it should be spat on because some of the stuff on there is, is, is cancer causing. But the point is he endured and he flourished adaptability. He, he didn't shut down because times changed. He changed with them. And yet he never missed a beat. You, you listened to him. He never stumbled. And I'm, I'm sure he did at times. But you, you, where was the stumble? Where was the loss for words? Where did he not find the phraseology to use at the right time? I mean, you, you just for those listening, just Google the Vin Scully snake story and listen to that. Well, when he tells that story during an inning, and he doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't miss a pitch. He had, Everything is so well-timed. It fits. It all fits in. It's an art form that he created behind the microphone that was just astonishing to listen to. And the great thing about baseball, or I guess to some people probably a detriment, but I think one of the great things about it is you have the time in a game to be able to be a Vince Scully, to tell stories about athletes or experiences and, and just draw in your audience because there is that dead time between pitches, between outs, between innings. You've got more than enough time to fill it but it's hard to fill that void. How are you able to fill in the silence? And then how are you able to become silent when the silence is warranted? As you mentioned, after some of his greatest calls, just letting the crowd fill the void and have the energy where the listeners know exactly how crazy a scenario it is happening. And then when time is right, he'll explain exactly in detail what just happened in front of him. And I think what goes hand in hand with Vin Scully, with guys like Christopher Mad Dog Russo, is this insane, almost insane, recognition and detail and just this almost historic mind where they can recall things that happened last week and they could recall things that happened 40 years ago and tell you exactly where they were watching it how the weather was outside, what they had for dinner, how they're able to remember everything almost as vividly as when they saw it always blows my mind. Like when you're able to ask Vin Scully, what happened in this game back in 1962? And he could basically read you back the box score is astonishing. And it has to just be something that helps you be great. I have a hard enough time remembering a couple plays from high school playing basketball and baseball and these guys are telling you stuff that 30 years ago happened and it's like it, they just experienced it yesterday the incredible recall that he also had well laid into his life about all different types of moments and scenarios that he had i don't know how during an interview you could pick just one because you get the generic well what was your favorite or how was this and how was that and you have a a cvs receipt long of experiences that you have to just pinpoint one of them and he always was able to do it and make it another great story to tell so a sad loss for baseball another life well lived and a great example for anybody coming through that wants to get into the business just pull up a, an old tape put it in your cassette player press play and just listen and learn 
and join us. He was a national treasure, the likes of which you know, come along once in a lifetime. It's as simple as that. There is, There was never anyone like him. There will never be another one like him. And it's so that. humble, too, when the Dodgers made the World Series after he retired, they kept asking him, like, you sure you don't want to come up to the booth even for the postseason games? Like, we'll, we'd love to have you. It would be an honor. Joe Buck was saying it for even the national broadcast to just get him up there. And he's, nope, I'm, I'm okay. I'm fine taking a step back. I've done my piece. I don't want to be a distraction. Never made it about him for all the pomp and circumstance after his retirement when they named the broadcast booth after him and he came out to some games and made some appearances. He called the first game seven of my memory. Even though I'm a Cardinal fan, I had no, for some, you know, there are certain times in your life, I have no recollection of the 1964 World Series. Cardinals beat the Yankees in seven games. And I mean zero, none, not watching a play, only seeing it you know, afterwards. Uh, you know, later on in life, the highlights and obviously reading the history of it, et cetera. I don't remember watching one game on national TV. The 1965 World Series, the Dodgers and the Twins, I do remember. And I don't remember each and every game and every play, but I remember certain aspects of it. And of course, Sandy Koufax not pitching on Yom Kippur and uh, Sandy Koufax taking the ball for game seven on two days rest. And I remember being in my backyard and, you know, when I was a kid, there were no, as you know, cell phones or video games. We played. And we wanted to play all the time outside. And you know, all the World Series games were during the day. And I was outside with my best friend in the backyard. And we were playing after school. And suddenly I was like, wait a second. Uh, Arthur, that was his name, my, my best friend next door neighbor, said, Arthur, it's game seven. It's the World Series. It's game seven ran inside, watched game seven, Vin Scully at the mic, on national TV, of course, with a great announcer who you probably don't remember, wouldn't remember, but you can look up, who most people know more from his NFL days as a legendary Packer announcer, Ray Scott, who was a legendary broadcaster, who was also the announcer for the Twins, but he was much more well-known for doing the Packer games. He and Vin Scully shared the play-by-play for Game 7, Koufax's legendary uh, route-going shutout of the Twins 2-0 on two days rest. That's the first time um, I remember hearing Vin Scully. And that was my first World Series that I remember. And he just filled my, my not just my, you know, obviously my baseball life, my sports life with NFL and CBS, but mostly, obviously, baseball. And he gave me cherished memories of a lifetime with incredible calls, incredible vivid descriptions, incredible stories. And he is one of the great, literally one of the great memories and experiences of filling my sports life. He helped make me an incredibly devoted sports fan. He's one of the reasons. Let's take a quick break to pay the bills. He's Al Renato. I'm John Lund. We'll be right back with the new report, old report here on Sports Radio America. We welcome you back. I'm John Lund. He's Al Renato, and this is the new report, old report. From those greatnesses to what's turned into a disgrace in the National Football League, the ruling came down for Deshaun Watson. It's a topic we talked about several weeks back with 
Mad Dog Sports Radio's Mike Meltzer, who was down in Houston covering Deshaun Watson with the Texans, who's also a lawyer. So he had enough skin in the game to kind of help us figure out what the situation was back then, when the decision might be made and what the decision might be. Well, it comes out on Monday, six games. Roger Goodell will appeal the ruling and he has the option to consider the appeal himself or he can appoint a designee to do so. He'll determine he'll hear the appeal. They're supposedly the NFL trying to get an indefinite suspension. That'll be a minimum of a year, a fine, a monetary fine, which isn't in the six games treatment for Deshaun Watson for whatever's fucked him up the way it has. And the union has the right to appeal Robinson's ruling. who was the judge for that. Although it issued a statement Sunday night saying it would stand by her decision and not the appeal. The NFLPA has until Friday to write a written response to the NFL's appeal. So now you start getting into the legalese mumbo jumbo of appeals and what's going to happen with that. So this will go on for a little bit longer, but the initial six games seemingly was a slap in the face overall to football fans. Cleveland fans, of course, at these training camps, trying to get autographs, pictures, Deshaun, Deshaun, couldn't be more happy to have him be at practice. But I would say the majority of people were almost just shocked that it was only six games based on the different suspensions that have been levied down in the National Football League over the past several years for seemingly apples and oranges type of stuff where how would this be less than that? And you could just go down the long list of things that the NFL has gotten wrong seemingly over and over again. Let's suspend this dude for going on DraftKings and betting on a couple games while he was hurt. Not his team, just as a normal sports person, out for the year, despite DraftKings being advertised and plastered on NFL stadiums across the country. And then we have this happen with at least 24 women having to have settlements based on their name, much more, of course, involved over that number of 24 that didn't want to go to court or didn't want to go forward with the processes. Interviews on HBO Sports with Brian Gumble about the situations that they were in and firsthand accounts of different things that he had to do and the list of descriptions and stories goes on and on, and yet the judge decides to settle with six games and basically says... Based on what the NFL's done before this, that's where we're at. It's a it's a lose lose for almost everyone involved, basically everyone involved, except for Deshaun Watson. Unbelievable. It, it was, I'll call it a stunning decision slash turnabout. Uh, I thought for sure he was going to get a minimum of ten games, if not a full season, and. On the one hand, in terms of you know, her ruling, she says the NFL proved its case you know, of you know, the, the numerous instances of sexual misconduct or sexual you know, assault, so to speak. But, you know, I'm paraphrasing now, but because it didn't amount to a violent sexual offense, well, he's only going to get six games. Uh, Elliot got six games, and that's the precedent she's citing. That was for one instance. This is two dozen cases. We don't know how violent. We don't know how non-consensual. They're all being settled, which is not an admission of guilt, of course. But you know, usually you don't settle if, as you had said you were, 
completely blameless and completely innocent of any wrongdoing. And he's settling all these cases. I told you at the very beginning, and you know it, I'm the one who stood on the soapbox and said he signed with the Browns because he got all this guaranteed money and all this guaranteed money, a chunk of which could be his war chest for settlement. And that's exactly what he did. And in the meantime, somehow, some way, this former judge came to the conclusion that what he did wrong was nothing more than what Elliot did wrong. And this bar could not have been lowered you know, to basically the height of a curb any worse than this judge has done in terms of lowering the standard now. Uh, what kind of statement does it make in regard to this, these two dozen women and women in general that were subject to, according to her, mistreatment to some type of misconduct, certainly by NFL standards, and you know, not one time, but 20 to 24 different times, and you're going to suspend him for six games? This is, it, it's blasphemy. It's stunning how he gets away with this. And you know, a court of law, we're going to have to do a court of law. It's got to do with findings of fact presented by the NFL that convinced the judge and she said that the NFL had proven their case. They've proven their case. How does he only get to spend for six games? It makes no sense whatsoever. So, of course, they've appealed. Uh, Commissioner Goodell is not going to hear it. He's appointed uh, you know, an attorney who's been a prosecutor in the past, who's had experience in sexual misconduct cases, who is going to hear the, hear the appeal. And remember, the appeal cannot be judged on any more facts than were presented on the original case. So... No new evidence, no new witnesses uh, of any kind. It's just the same evidence, that documentation that was before the initial officer, the, the former judge. And the Players Association, of course, said they're going to go to federal court, but I'm still trying to figure out upon what grounds they're going to go to federal court. I would think logically they would seek a stay of any decision that's creates results in further suspension, but the NFL is following the collective bargaining agreement. Both sides are entitled to appeal. The Players Association said that they would stand by her ruling and not appeal, okay? The NFL has decided to go a different route. They will appeal. So I'm very confused as to what grounds the Players Players Association is going to go into court, federal court, to do what? To prevent the NFL from going forward with an appeal that they had the right to file and didn't. So they're taking advantage of their appellate rights under the collective bargaining agreement and the players association isn't. So what exactly are you going to court over? Because the decision of an appeal is according to the collective bargaining agreement, binding final. So I don't know where the players association is going with this. Uh, Hopefully ultimately it's settled. You know, the NFL wants 12 games. They want counseling, which you would think, I mean, you have to go to counseling now if you curse it, guys. How is this guy not required to go to counseling? I'm just, I'm confounded. I mean, it's almost like the fact, I hate to say this, but it's almost like a, a female judge bent over backwards to not look at this from, you know, a female point of view in terms of taking into account the rights of these women. I'm not saying that she should look at it 
from the woman's point of view, but it looked like she bent over backwards to be on the side of the guy. So as not to be accused of, well, you know, you're a woman, uh, of course you're going to decide and, and, you know, give them the harshest penalty. Almost looked like she bent over backwards to avoid doing that. And I, I just, I could not believe the decision when I read it. I didn't understand the rationale. I didn't understand the penalty. And I still don't. And I'll be shocked if he doesn't get either a harsher penalty off the appeal or an ultimate you know, settlement where he gets it with 12 games, where, where he agrees to 12 games or maybe 10, whatever the case may be, and a very large fine in counseling. I think counseling is huge. It's got to, an example's got to be set here. And this just bypasses all of that. It just feels gross to put it bluntly. The whole thing feels gross. And to have a judge making a decision based off of former decisions made by the National Football League, well, why is that a precedent that you want to hold up as what should be? But even the precedent didn't make any sense. I mean, this is 24 cases. Right. It's not one. If somebody does something wrong once, all right, and you render a decision and you issue a penalty. It's different if you do it 24 times. You know, in life, that's just the way it works. You don't get to get slapped on the wrist 24 different times if you do the same thing wrong over and over and over and over again. This is a mass case with two dozen women involved where, according to the evidence found by the judge, he committed under the NFL policy sexual misconduct and or sexual assault. And he did it once, he didn't do it twice, he did it a multitude of times. So that should call for a much harsher penalty than someone who got six games. And imagine anywhere in life where your employer tells you, we know things are going to get bad. We'll settle with these 25 women. We'll make sure that the money that we're offering you for a salary won't be lost if this goes south for a season. We'll guarantee that you'll get paid when you come back. Don't you fret. What the hell else in the world does this happen? Aside from the National Football League, where this dude gets a slap on the wrist for this. Maybe six games. Probably six games. Comes back to play with open arms by the fans and by the organization for the rest of the season. It'll be forgotten about before you know it, because that's how the news cycle works in professional sports when stuff like this happens. And he's making $230-plus to play a football game, and this won't stain his legacy in the least for most once this dust settles in a couple months. It's unbelievable. And you got guys like Josh Gordon who had their whole career derailed and ruined because he liked to smoke some weed. How's that and work? Remember, and remember, he took this Browns money specifically with not just the war chest in mind, but the contract was structured. Despite the quarter of a billion dollars that he is getting, only a million dollars of it is in this year's salary. So they very smartly, from a financial standpoint, structured his contract. So with all that guaranteed money, the first year of his contract, his salary is only a million dollars. So for whatever suspension he has, the amount of money he loses from his salary is literally, I mean, it's literally from our point of view, it, it, it's couch change. That's what, it, that's what he loses. 
it's, it's unfathomable <laughs> that this is that this is the penalty he's, he's been imposed. This is what he's been sentenced to. The penalty imposed upon him is six games, and it's basically like you know you lost a five dollar bet. All right, uh, it's it's beyond belief, beyond belief. The uproar that fans and others had for the Kyler Murray bullet point addendum in his contract that he had to do four hours of basically homework a week to study the playbook, to pay attention to what was going on for just four hours. The uproar that came from that, that had the Arizona Cardinals have to take that clause out of his contract because then Kyler Murray came out as well, pissed out of the press conference that he made for himself. Where was that same uproar for that, the same uproar for that $1 million little addendum that the Cleveland Browns threw into their contract, basically saying we're fine, literally pissing this money away for the 2022 season. But when you come back, cause you'll probably come back. Here's 230 waiting for you. All good. Courtesy of those courtesy of the war criminals extraordinaire. All right. The Haslam brothers who are, who are, who are the criminals, right? They're thieves. Right? And they don't care. They have no conscience. And by the by the way, the uh, the gentleman who will hear the appeal is uh, Peter Harvey. He is the former New Jersey Attorney General, and he's been involved in these cases before. You know, with the NFL, Goodell has appointed him in the past. So uh, I, I'll be shocked if this isn't a much if this doesn't result in the suspension that at least is twice as severe as he got. I will be stunned. Stunned. It's been gross, and it's. It's going to take a lot to not even rectify the situation, but but just make the taste of it a little bit better than what it currently is. Got to clean it up. Got to clean it up. Feels you just feel dirty from top to bottom. I think it's just I, I no no disrespect to the Browns. I, I just think it's a, you know a terrible reflection on the entire Browns organization. I really do. He took their money. Remember, he wasn't going to go there. He crossed the Browns off the list in terms of the trade possibilities. Well, why? You know, <laughs> he's a warm weather guy. He's a warm weather kid. Where's Cleveland playing? Well, they play half their games in Cleveland, and they also play you know, in Baltimore, and they play in Cincinnati, and they play in Pittsburgh. But suddenly, that cold weather—well, there were 250 million reasons it was okay to deal with the cold. He can warm himself up by burning that million dollars in the fireplace all winter. Put it on the sidelines. He'll be fine. Generates a lot of heat. Hundred dollar bills. Football will be here soon enough. It's not yet. However, for you college football people on Twitter, football's back! Hold on a second. There's still a couple more weeks left of summer. Just pump the brakes. We'll get to your little week zero by September 1st soon enough. But still go outside, go to the beach, and enjoy yourself. College football having its fall camp, despite there still being a month and a half left of wintertime. Can we come up with a different name, please? Fall camp in August. We don't have to see guys running around in pads in 105-degree weather just wet yet, do we? Do I have to watch that? Packed these places to watch these practices. Coach, how's the quarterback battle going? Buddy, we've had two practices. Let's hold right now, on a right second. Now, right, now, right, now, right now we suffer from dehydration. Okay, <laughs> we'll give him some salt pills because it's 110 in the shade. Right? But other than that, everything's fine. Yeah, thanks for asking. Jesus, football-obsessed fools. Just hold on a second. It'll all be okay. 
football obsessed fools while I'm watching the end of the Jacksonville Jaguars, Las well, Vegas Raiders. That, that the, you, you, you'd have to put a gun to my head to get me to watch that. Uh, no, I'm not watching it on TV because, as you say, you would have to put a gun to my head too. But I got the little tracker up because I might have taken the over 30 and a half, and it's 27 to 3. Anybody at home can guess who has the three. Before we say goodbye, a shameless plug. Yours truly uh, did appear on Nick Wright's uh, What's Right podcast this past week that was just released on Sunday as Nick has been counting down his top 50 NBA players of the last 50 years, not of all time, but of the last 50 years. And he was down to number two. And uh, he asked, and his production crew asked me to be a part of that program. So I did a little uh, one minute, 60, 70 seconds, 60 to 70 seconds spiel on his number two of all time. So if you want to uh, go to your podcast and check out what's right, the number two player of all time, I'm not going to tell you who it was. You can find out and you'll probably guess, uh, you know, make an educated guess because there's really a, a short list of who could be in the top three or four. Uh, so I won't say who it was, but they asked me to do it. So you know, I did a little spiel and I was honored to be a part of it. And Michael Cooper was the other party who did uh, you know, a little soundbite for Nick uh, as he did his special on uh, the sec- his second greatest player of the last 50 years. So check it out. The What's Right podcast. This is the Alpha White Plains in action. Uh, full Laker regalia, Laker cap, Laker championship t-shirt. Uh, my son, the contributing editor, uh, because he taped it, uh, got it all squared away and sent it off to the boys. So Beautiful. Yeah, of course. Who else to hear from than Michael Cooper and then Alpha White Plains about this uh, specific player, which we can get into the final list. I don't know when Nick plans to release who his number one is, probably in the upcoming days. We'll put a cap on that. Next week, we'll get into some of what happened around Major League Baseball and the trade deadlines and some shakeups among some of the better teams across the league and what that'll look like for the postseason runs for them. And maybe we can start dabbling in who we think will be successful in said footballs, professional and collegiate, as I pray the Jaguars are able to get a field goal here toward the end of the game. (laughs) It's always a pleasure. We'll do it again next week. Johnny, great being with you again, folks. Great to be back. We hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, for my partner, the great John Tiny Lund, I'm El Renato, a.k.a. from White Plains. Have a great sports weekend, everybody. We'll be back 8 p.m. Eastern time here on Sports Radio America. You can listen at sportsradioamerica.com and interact with the show there as well or find us on the TuneIn app by searching for Sports Radio America. You can also follow John Lund under the same handle on Twitter at London Bridge. Thanks again for listening. 